Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Bread podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and I'm here with a newly minted 50 year old <laughs> Flynn McLean. Happy you birthday, to, you, Flynn! You had to mention that, didn't you? Thank you, thank you. Yes, I I share a birthday with uh, Bruce's mother Adele, as well as Su- Susie Tyrell. So does that count as uh, like a, any kind of birthday triplet kind of thing? I don't know, but we'll <laughs> leave it to the audience to figure that out. But happy birthday to Adele and Susie as well. And to me, so thank you. And to my dog, Callie. <laughs> and I got quite the birthday present, uh, well, a few days later anyway. Yeah, she certainly did. And coming right on the heels of our Human Touch and Lucky Town shows, they delivered a core set show from the 1992 tour. And I got to say, it makes for a good listen. Yes, it does. I'm sure I'm not the only one who hasn't listened to one of those shows in a, in a while. So it was it's it sounded pretty damn fresh. Um, everything sounded sounded great to me. I, I love that tour and, and just hearing some of the some of the guitar riffs and some of the sense riffs just took me back to, to 90, 92 all over again. Well, I got to say, having listened to it, it did confirm some of the thoughts that we discussed in the last two episodes. For one thing, you take the opening of the show, Better Days local hero, Lucky Town, and then followed by Darkness. That's a hell of a run of songs, and it worked phenomenally well. Now, there's some stuff in the show that doesn't work quite as well, and uh, again, I'm addressing Gloria's eyes, which (laughs) I believe I called generic rocker in the Human Touch episode, and I'm not even sure it actually rises to that level. It's it's just not a very good song, and it, it... you do think back to what I was saying and what if there had been a lucky town tour, I, I think the opening of the show and, and let's also throw in the big muddy, which followed darkness. You really do see how a lucky town tour might've unfolded. And then when he does go into some of that human touch stuff, look, it, it just, it, it doesn't work at the, the sense it sounds dated and the songs are not as high quality. And, and it, it was a fun tour and, and it's a really fun show to listen to. The audience is really engaged in the show. And I think Al Schiller did a good job bringing that out. But yeah, some of the human touch stuff, it, it just 30 years later, it, it's dated. <laughs> yeah. And as you're saying about Gloria's eyes, this definitely points out, makes it glaringly obvious that it should have been replaced by uh, leaving train or seven angels or, you know, 30 days out on, on the actual album. And it could have been, and those songs could have been played in the exact same spot. And probably it would have, would have been a much better show. Now I did see on BTX, some people were questioning why did, didn't they release the second night, which is said to be better, you know, but the second night didn't include real world Gloria's eyes, the big money. I, I think the point of this release and correct me if I'm wrong was to represent as much of the human touch and lucky town material as possible. Well, I don't know if that was their their goal, but it certainly was was the outcome here. Um, the second night had more more E Street stuff. Uh, Prove it all night. Growing up, growing up was acoustic. I know, uh, but you know, you're not going to '92 to listen to performances of those songs. You're gonna, if you want to listen to Growing Up, there are dozens others from you know from the '70s and and certainly uh, over the last decade or so and. Prove it all night. Obviously, the '78 version is, you know, is the is the version. So I would I definitely prefer having uh, Big Muddy in there instead of Growing Up and Gloria's Eyes instead of Prove It. It's it's really just about those 16 songs, in my opinion. Oh, I think there's no doubt of that. And and one of the goals with this series is to present what he's done uh, across his entire career. And 
along with the July 25th release from the Meadowlands in 1992. Uh, we have 16 songs here. I believe there was at least two or three others. All or Nothing was included in that show. Real Man yeah. was included in that show. So we have most of that material represented. And, and to me, that's what you want from the archive series. As you say, I mean, what do we need another version of Prove It All Night, an inferior version of that? So, <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, this one is all is really, as I said, all about the, the new stuff. And you're right, they've actually released at least 19 songs from the 24 from those two albums. I don't remember if Book of Dreams is on Plugged or not, but that's the that's the one I have a question mark for. But you take these, you take these 16, you take the two that you mentioned from 725, and then you throw in I Wish I Were Blind from Unplugged or Plugged. And that's that. That's the 19. And and I think it's a good representation, and it'll probably be a long time before we get another show from this tour. And that and that's okay. Uh, there's really not many other songs. I think there's like one other one, and that's one you keep bringing up, is that solo electric dancing, dancing in the dark. But, you know, unless they release the opening night of the Meadowlands, I, I don't see that happening. Well, I do believe that show should be released. Also, you've got With Every Wish in there, the last performance of that ever. And that was really, really good. So if they ever get back to it, I could see that one potentially being released. We haven't had a show from 93 yet, other than the benefit, of course. The Count Basie still hangs out there, (laughs) which they probably don't have. But I'm sure they have European shows. And and again, the tour should be represented. and, and, And that's what they're doing. Yeah, well, and I think of the of these two ninety two releases plus the ninety three one, they've done, they've hit they've hit the high points, uh, for the most part. And I it wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if it's another if it's another two years before we get another another show from this tour. I can understand that, but I enjoy them and and I <laughs> I buy them. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to those sixteen songs quite a bit over the, over the next week or so, and uh, even though it's gonna compete with uh, that new Hartford recording from from two thousand, uh, for my for my listening attention, Hoserama that <laughs> delivering big time there, especially since you revealed a couple of weeks back that unfortunately they don't have the Hartford shows from the reunion tour. This is a major, major upgrade. No offense to you who did the original. Uh, and I'm none taken whatsoever. Uh, Hoserama is, is the master. There is no one, there's no one better that I know of. I mean, maybe there are people out there who have mixed shows and just not released them. But as for people who are actually releasing shows, he is the, he's the master and I bow to him. Yeah, well, he's certainly the best in the Bruce community, and he's also the best in the U2 community. Some of the stuff he's put out for U2 is is truly stellar. So yes, it is. Uh, this was a very, very welcome thing to hear, and I am getting through it, and and it was a very memorable show, as <laughs> you you well know, and I'm just enjoying it. So thanks to him for getting that out there. Yeah, that's the it's the May 8th show from uh, from Hartford 2000. It's definitely filling a, a pretty big hole in the. Uh, in the in the in these archives <laughs> to say the least we also got a new episode of bruce's radio show on sirius from my home to yours and i don't know if he was sending us a message probably not <laughs> but it was dedicated to friendship and one of the songs was none but the brave that's right i was kept expecting him to say that's for my friends uh hal and flynn out there but uh that would he, really be something i have to say that that, that would have blown me away right there uh, <laughs> i would have been on the floor for the next week but uh, what he, he did say about Nothing But The Brave was it was it was a, one of the many outtakes from that era that they didn't release because of insanity. So 
you know, uh, as always, hoping for that insanity to be uh, to be addressed and maybe, you know, change that. But, you got to figure later this year there's going to be something released. They're not going to let the whole year go. So uh, as we know, hope springs eternal for <laughs> tracks, too. Yeah, maybe the third time's the charm. We've been down this road the last two years, so I'm not getting I'm not getting too worked up just yet. Now, before we move on to the main topic, which is the 1981 European leg of the River Tour, I should mention, as you, you know this, I did actually attend a full-fledged <laughs> rock concert last week. I attended the Vax Live show, which aired on network TV last night. And I got to say, just being in a building, 25,000 people, no social distancing, it was amazing to experience again. And, and Dave Grohl really sort of stole the evening. They, they played a 45-minute set after everyone else was done. And it, it was just to see a building rocking like that, it, it just really makes you hope and, and pray that next year that things are back on track and that Bruce can get out there and that everyone else will be out there. Maybe it'll even be later this year. But th this was a special show where every person was confirmed vaccinated in advance and done under under very strict rules. But it was just great to be in a building like that. I can imagine. Uh, see what happens when we get every when everybody can be vaccinated. We can we can have those things again. We can have nice things if 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 enough people get their vaccinations. Yeah, and 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 really, I mean, people, please, uh, you know, we're not trying to be political here. <laughs> we just want to go. Shouldn't be political. Uh, no, I just want to go see some music, and and this was a chance after 15 months. It, it was really, <laughs> I think, for everyone in attendance, a very emotional experience, especially the performers and. It, it made it possible. I mean, that that's just the fact of the matter. The fact that we were all vaccinated <laughs> made it possible that we were there. And it just we got to see some live music and, and I hope to see more in the coming months. I, I hope I hope we will. Uh, and to keep it even remotely related to Bruce, uh, Eddie Vedder did a cover of uh, Stephen's uh, I'm a Patriot, isn't he? Yeah, he's done that many times in the past. It was a very good version. He was playing with Josh Klinghoffer and his band. I saw Steve actually tweeted about it today that he was he was very excited about it. I hope that Bruce is able to get out there. And as we've discussed before, just think about how exciting it's going to be that first night when they take the <laughs> stage again. That's true. I just I just want it to be somewhat normal and without the need for social distancing. I can I can deal with the mask. I don't want to be six feet away from from the from the next fan. I want everyone to be in there. There in won't the be social distancing because, as we saw last week, there there will be some kind of mechanism. First of all, the economics of these concerts don't allow for social distancing. It's it just not possible. And all the tickets that are being sold for concerts that are going on sale now for either later this year or next year are full configuration shows without distancing, I, I feel very confident that when we are standing at a show together, that, <laughs> that there's not going to be social distancing. Well, that's a good thing, because we all want to be as close as possible to the stage. So so we can we can really feel the energy and the relief coming off Bruce when he when he does take the stage for that for that first time. Now, of course, he may be in a plexiglass booth. <laughs> I just, of course. <laughs> yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll have glass, uh, plexiglass dividers on the stage between every band member. That's so. not going to be necessary. Again, I'm sure they're all <laughs> going to be vaccinated. Everything is going to be back to normal. I truly believe that. So, all right, well, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you, hold you to that, Hal. <laughs> Let's move on to the main topic, and, and we have a very special guest tonight to discuss the 1981 European leg of the River Tour, and Flynn, would you like to introduce the guest? Sure. It's uh, it's Dan French. 
He saw 20 shows in the summer of 1981 in Europe and, and the UK. He created the the fanzine Point Blank out, out of out of London, and not he was the editor and and the founder. That's right. Thank you very much, Flynn and Hal. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, um, I started a, a fanzine back in 1980, just because I was on my own in terms of um, not having any friends who were Bruce Bruce fans, and um, it, that's what led me to everything that um, that happened later. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, very lucky. Well, well, the first thing I want to ask is, you did not see Bruce in '75 when he during those his four show tour uh, of Europe, right? No, indeed. Uh, I <laughs> held up my hand and say, yeah, I'm guilty. I was one of those folks that was put off by the hype. Okay. Uh, well, I, really. I, I remember the hype. I remember the posters, the, all the, the billboards, all the advertising, and I thought, what is this? This is crazy. This is too over the top. I don't need this, and I. Went away, ignored it, you know, and still kicking myself all these years later. It turned out the hype was real. <laughs> exactly. I should, should have paid attention. Yeah. So the, my question then is, how did you go from being turned off by the hype to becoming a huge fan, a, a, a fan big enough to, to start a, a fanzine? That's a good question. I, it was a few years later. Um, I was at college and there was a, a friend I had there who was a year older than me who was kind of my, my musical inspiration. He seemed to be playing the stuff that I was getting into. So um, uh, he'd given me a, a mixtape, which included um, Born to Run, just the one track, which I thought was pretty cool, but it didn't make me rush out and buy everything. And then he was the first guy I knew that had um, Springsteen bootlegs. So uh, he had got a, himself a copy of the Roxy, back in vinyl, obviously, in those days. And he was also a great guitar player. So there was one day I was sitting in his room at college and he's playing the Roxy bootleg and he's playing along on guitar to Bruce's solos. And he played along virtually note perfect to the Candy's Room solo um, from that show. And this is this kind of served to focus my attention on the music. And I remember thinking, wow, this is pretty special. And then, of course, I had to go and go out and get everything, which at that time was only four albums. And... <laughs> Took a while to get hold of any any bootlegs. It was just you know copies on on cassette at that point. And then of course it was a case of waiting. It's like right, when do we get the chance to see him? And of course we had to wait till 1981 because he didn't come over to Europe until then. It always strikes me that so many of these stories about how people like us became fans are are so similar. And and my experience, Dan, a couple of years later is a lot like yours. And and there's no doubt the community really helped this fan base grow. And your fanzine was a part of that. Well, that's right, because uh, as you I'm sure you remember back then, there wasn't much in the way of any kind of network of anything. There was uh, Thunder Road uh, fanzine out of the States uh, was the first proper fanzine, I guess. And I got hold of a couple of copies of that just from mail order. But there was obviously nothing in Europe. And um, there was another guy that was wanting to said he was going to start a fanzine in 1980, which ended up being the Candy's Room fanzine. But it was really slow. Nothing much seemed to be happening. I was getting impatient. Um, and I just thought, you know, I need to make contact with people. And so I thought, well, let me put a, a, I'll put a little... Um, small ad, a classified ad in the music papers. That's, that's what you did at the, back in, the, in those, those days um, to find out about this kind of thing and see if anyone's interested in a fanzine. 
and I got a lot of positive feedback. And so I thought, right, I'm going to try and put something together. So I just put together a little very simple basic issue with bits and pieces that I, I pulled together at that point. This is summer of 1980. And, um, and before I knew it, it was sort of off and running. And I was making friends all over the place. It's really fascinating to hear about the fanzine and and how that, as I was saying, helped open the community. Now, as we move into the topic, we want to talk about where Bruce was at the time. Of course, the river had come out in the fall of 1980. He did the U.S. tour, which ran into early 1981, and he was supposed to come to Europe, which was going to be his first major European tour. That was to to begin in March, Dan. Is that right? The original plan was that that was going to be the beginning of the European tour. And then, as we all know, um, Bruce was suffering from exhaustion, and I'm sure that they tried to sort of postpone it as long as possible. But at relatively short notice, they decided that they were going to shift the whole UK tour until after the mainland part of the tour. So basically giving, um, shifting everything a couple of months, and this would obviously buy some time for Bruce to recover. But I think the reality is that he probably didn't really recover and he was probably struggling most nights. Um, you know, we have memories of seeing him being helped off the stage at the end of the night sometimes, but obviously fueled by the amazing response he was getting from European fans. And that's what kept him going. Now, interestingly, this was one of the first times he really spent a large amount of time out of the U.S. He had done the four shows in 75. And and this really did plant the seeds for a change in, I think, not only his worldview, but we know also Steve's worldview, and, and I suspect it had similar impact on other band members. Definitely. It was really a kind of, um, as you say, a sort of just a, a coming of consciousness time for so many of them. Yeah, as you say, Steve particularly has talked about the time he was in Germany and some kid came up to him and said, why are you putting missiles in my country? And you know, that was the first time that they'd stopped to think of themselves as Americans abroad and, and you know, how, they, how that seemed to, um, to other countries. So it was, a, and it was very obvious from the way Bruce spoke to people. He'd been sort of, you know, reading more a lot, uh, getting, getting sort of politically awakened. And that was sort of, so that was combining with the fact that he, they were literally exploring new ground for the first time. And it was, um, yeah, it was an, an extraordinary sort of combination of, of those those events. Well, it sounds like there was already a, a sizable fan base there there in Europe, and uh, and you said there was an enthusiastic response uh, to the from the European fans at those early shows. How do you think the Europeans got into him so quickly? Well, I think it was there had always been a kind of fascination with with American culture generally in in Europe. I mean. Uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of people assume that in the uh, on the sort of continental mainland that there would have been a, quite a language barrier, but uh, this didn't really seem to be the case. I mean, at least, especially in the places that I went to, Germany, for example, um, and um, Frankfurt, where I I saw my first show. I believe there was a big um, American military base, so there were quite a few GIs and. Um, you know, a fair proportion of the audience was American, uh, away from home. And Paris is also very cosmopolitan. It's always taken an interest in American culture. So maybe I was just lucky with these these places. But um, yeah, my impression was that I was really impressed that um, people seemed to know the songs, they knew the words. Um, 
And I think there have probably been a, a build-up of anticipation in the media as well, certainly in the UK. We had a lot of media interest, you know, n not just at this point, but, you know, in the sort of on and off uh, every year uh, ever since since the beginning. So that was probably much, the, much the, the same case in other countries too. I would think that would be the case, especially since he decided not to tour outside the U.S. for darkness, which 40 years later, 40 plus years later, just seems like a, a shocking decision. But you know, it is what happened. That's right. I believe it was it was seriously considered at least once um, and possibly at other times. But uh, and of course, that would have been perfect timing for me if he'd come over in, say, like like late 1978. But um uh, I think it maybe just served to fuel the anticipation even more. So after uh, about a month and a half of delays, the, the European tour finally opens on uh, on April 7th in West Germany in Hamburg. And then, Dan, your first show was a week later on April 14th in Frankfurt. You had quite the story, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, yes, that's right, because, I mean, I was not planning to go. I mean, my, um, my sort of position just a, a week or two before – was that I was thinking, oh, this is a real shame. You know, the UK tour is postponed. I'm going to have to wait. Um, I had no plans to go to Europe because I was um, I was unemployed. I had uh, had no money. I had time on my hands, but if I wanted to, to travel anywhere, I had generally had to hitchhike or stay on people's floors, that kind of thing. So everything changed when one day I just received a letter um, in the mail from one of my uh, my readers, if you like, from the fanzine. Um, uh, a woman in, in, in Germany called Rena, and she basically just sent me this uh, this note saying, see you at the Canadian Pacific Hotel in Frankfurt on the 13th of April. And enclosed was a ticket for the Frankfurt show the following day. So my first thought is, right, I'm going to Frankfurt. How do I get there? <laughs> <laughs> this has got to be done. And I knew about a, a London friend who was also going to one of the shows in Paris. So I arranged with him to, that we'd hook up. Um, I'd sort of go there on the way. People, We knew people who were trying to get tickets for Paris because, well, as you can imagine, the information getting tickets for between the different countries was quite sort of uh, uh, quite complicated. So um, I hitchhiked to Paris. Uh, so far, so good. And met my friend. And um, initially, a, a fruitless search for extra tickets there. But again, a lot of confusion within Paris itself. The only clue I found was that uh, there was a, a display uh, of posters in a, um, a window in a metro subway saying, Bruce Springsteen on France, you know, CBS France or whatever. Um, so at least I knew was, you know, something was happening. But it wasn't until I actually got to Frankfurt itself. Uh, I had to give up hitchhiking and get a train to get there on time. Late on the 13th of April, I got to the, uh, the, the Festhalle, the, the arena, and saw this giant red sign saying Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, 14th of April. And so I thought, right, I'm finally in the right place at the right time. I, and does, didn't that feel amazing? <laughs> that was extraordinary, Hal. That, that really made it everything worthwhile. And I thought, yep, you know, whatever happens now, you know, I've, I've got my ticket. The show's going to be tomorrow. This is going to be really special. Little did I know. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because I had never seen a show outside the United States until 2012. And when I arrived at Bercy in Paris and saw the name on the venue, by then I had seen, I mean, hundred, you know, well over 100 shows. But just to be in that foreign country and and, and, and the culture being different and to, to look up at that arena as I as, as we arrived at the venue and, and to see Bruce Springsteen's group band, it, it just felt so good. 
That, that's right. It, it, this this kind of thing, like the little sign I saw in Paris, and that, that those two indications just meant so much. Just kind of uh, support me on my sort of uh, well, my solo journey. And I'd, I'd never been to Frankfurt before. I hardly spoke any German. I was just totally winging it, you know, um, winging a prayer. And um, so I found the hotel. That was the first thing. And I thought, oh, this is big and expensive. I, I can't afford to stay here. Tried to find my friend at the reception. And there were no and cell. There were no cell phones in those days. <laughs> exactly. This is this is all done. You know, sort of. If if, if your timing doesn't work out, you that's that's it. You know. As so, Bruce said on Broadway, <laughs> when you were lost, you were lost. I, I was lost and alone. Yeah. So uh, all I could do was leave a message for her at reception. Luckily, I had the presence of mind to do that, and so I just left a note. I decided that the nearest place I could go was the park, which was opposite. Um, so I left her a note with this woman I'd never met saying, um, uh, sorry, I missed you. I've gone to sleep in the park. See you tomorrow. <laughs> it sounds like quite the adventure. What happened after that? That evening, I, I missed quite an event because um, in, if I'd gone around the corner from the reception into the bar, I would have met my friend, um, although I probably wouldn't have recognized her because I'd never met her before. But she was waiting in the bar. Um, bizarrely, holding some copies of my fanzine. And this is because I'd got um, a friend in London to help me make some copies, and, and he, so he saved me some money. He mailed them for free, and to do so, he had to mark them for display purposes, so like they were commercial samples. This way it got through his, his office mailing system. So my German friend takes the instruction literally, uh, thinks, hmm, display, okay. And so she sits, she's sitting in the lobby and displaying some fanzines <laughs> and the most peculiar thing the e street band wander in uh, because they happen to be staying in the same hotel and as you'll know 13th of april is max's birthday so time to buy a drink for max and clarence sees this woman holding pictures of bruce springsteen <laughs> and of course goes over and starts talking and the next thing she knows she's surrounded by the whole band and they're all celebrating max's birthday Whereas yours truly is sleeping in the park. <laughs> oh, well, that's so you, a bummer. You, you weren't even there. Oh man, that that hurts. Uh, I know. But the, the the best sort of footnote to that, which I learned later, was that uh, after a few drinks, it sounds like, um, Rena uh, actually gets my note, which I left for her at the reception. She goes back to Clarence and says, "We've got to go and find my friend Dan. He's in the park." So. A little bit the worse for wear. Um, Rena and Clarence go around the park looking for me in the dark, shouting, Dan French, come out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this is just, you know, um, it, it was amazing to, to miss it, but it was it was just great to hear the story later, as you can imagine. Wow, that's that's really just incredible. Now, of course, the next day would get even bigger because you were about to see Bruce Springsteen East Street Band for the first time. Let's talk about that. What was it like when the lights went down in the venue and the show kicked off? Well, that was obviously uh, an amazing experience. But I just have to um, um, uh, mention before that, the, uh, mm -hmm. my, my first live experience uh, was actually the sound check that, that afternoon, and uh, which I was not expecting. At, at every point, you know, multiple points during the day, um, uh, I, we'd been sort of hanging out with Clarence on and off, and I kept thinking, 
right, this is amazing, but the fun's got to stop, you know, um, time to sort of just become a normal fan and, and sort of go <laughs> and get, get my seat and, and sort of have that experience. And at the last minute, Clarence took us into the sound check. So the very first live E Street Band experience I have is the band Minus Bruce playing Hungry Heart and the sound check while Bruce does his famous walking around the tiers with Bruce Jackson checking the sound in all, all parts of the arena. Uh, and my initial reaction was, wow, this is, apart from being like a dream come true, this the sound, it, to me, actually, as a layman, actually sounds perfect. It's crystal clear. It's sparkling. It was the best sound I'd ever heard in any kind of uh, arena situation, any musical, live musical situation. And I thought, this is incredible. But they, they did keep playing Hungry Heart and then Prove It All Night for about an hour and a half. And the, same, eventually... the, same, the same two songs over and over again? It was uh, Hungry Heart a few times, um, and then it was Prove It All Night uh, a few times. And after at least once or twice with Prove It All Night, Bruce had finally satisfied with the general sound and came onto the stage and joined in. So finally, the last sort of maybe half an hour was Bruce and the E Street Band. And the thing that struck me about that was it was surprisingly kind of like relaxed and, and um, sort of almost lazy. And I thought, this isn't quite what I expected. And then it suddenly occurred to me, of course, he, he's pacing himself. He's going <laughs> to play a, a three-hour show pretty soon. You know, he's got to conserve his energy. Then it all seemed to make sense. But when you consider that there were like probably 10 of us in the room and I was just able to sit at the front row and soak it all up, that was ab- almost more amazing than the show itself. That is, and, yeah. Know, and then the show itself, um, that that feeling we all know when the lights go down and there's a roar. I mean, which again, I, I didn't expect. I, I didn't I didn't know whether the German fans were going to be sort of going nuts from the start, but but there was a roar, and um, uh, and it just sort of you get the, the goosebumps and you hear the, the drone of the organ and the drums as factory is starting, um, and it, and it was incredible. Yeah, and thankfully that there are. Uh, those were recording, you know, so I can I can go back and listen to it again, <laughs> again and again. Something really fascinating is in front of non-English speaking audiences, instead of opening with a flat out rocker, he was opening with really more of a dirge. Exactly. It, it seemed like a really strange choice. But as I say, it, it served to kind of just basically sort of just like whip, whip the crowd up. So that they were going nuts during during factory. And that's interesting because you probably read the um, report. I think it was in Dave Marsh's book about uh, uh, on tour with Bruce, where the first show at Hamburg, the German crowd was quite restrained and basically sitting on their hands pretty much for a good part of the show until Bruce won them over. And then by the end of the show, uh, the promoter was saying, what have you done to my Germans? You know, they, because they'd gone you know, nuts by the end of the show and they kind of, they got the idea. So by the time he got to, got to Frankfurt um, a couple of shows later, I think they were well primed. I'm sure there were people that went from show to show and uh, word had spread that, you know, this is a rock show. You, you get up, you know, you can scream your head off. You can have a great time. It wasn't something to just sit, sit and politely applaud. Well, be honest, it's been a while since I've read Dave, Dave Marsh's book. Um, do you remember at what point in the show did the crowd finally really jump into it? In my memory, which is a little bit uh, sketchy, obviously, for after 40 years, it's um, I'd say it's probably about halfway through the first set. Um, so probably something like um, around the time of the promised land, 
Okay. Uh, certainly by the time of Badlands and Thunder Road, um, if not before, because of course the the as you as you know the first part of the set was kind of like the in a way the most thoughtful part where he's doing these spoken introductions to songs like Independence Day and This Land Is Your Land, and again you know totally not caring or worrying about any kind of language barrier, really quite lengthy lengthy uh, spoken introductions, which. Now- um, commanded the people's attention, and you could tell they were—they were not just being thinking what's he saying. They—they they were, were—they were listening. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes. We've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurewitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Now, had you heard any, through the magic of bootlegging, had you, had you heard any shows from the River Tour up, up to that point? That's a good question, uh, Finn. I was trying to remember that in in recent days. I don't think um, I'd heard much. I think what I'd, I had heard is I, I'd read reviews, I'd, I'd read reports from various sources, um, probably about you know places like New York um, previously, and I think we'd probably heard something about the New Year's Eve shows, but it was all yeah, kind of still pretty much secondhand at that point. I don't remember having a recording. Uh, like a recent recording um, okay. until later. Um, although I, I did tape one of the shows myself. <laughs> I, taped, I, ta- I, I taped Stafford. So if you ever have the Stafford recording, it's 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 almost certainly mine. I don't think anybody else did. And I don't t- claim any um, any pride in it because it, it's a pretty awful recording. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a recording of the River Tour, so it's it has, it, it it has value just in that respect. It, it completes that little history, yeah. yeah so so my, my question then is, so after two years, or I guess about a year and a half, of listening to the Roxy and, and other bootlegs, how did the show, how did it measure up? Oh, I mean, absolutely everything I, I was, was, was dreaming of. I mean, as I say, I probably had a, a fairly good idea what to expect um, of a set list. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, obviously the, only, the most recent comparisons I, I probably had were things like, um, um, you know, the um, we, we, we'd had uh, Rosalita, I think, was probably the best known video footage. And um, then, of course, we had the, the, there was a little bit in, the, in No Nukes, which came um, uh, that same year. It wasn't until the same year that we saw that. 
So I remember just, just thinking how extraordinary it was because I, I'd seen Bruce earlier in the day sitting in the hotel lobby and he was just like this little hunched up guy in dark glasses and leather jacket. And I thought, you know, he just doesn't look like this kind of larger than life figure I was expecting, you know, having seen things like the Rosalita and, um, and the energy and the, well, the, the, the two-way energy, as I say, from the, from the Bruce and the band and sort of being fed back, you know, from the audience um, was just uh, absolutely extraordinary. That was the thing I remember most overall about the whole experience. Now, we want to get through the whole tour. Uh, you saw 20 shows, correct? Correct. Wow. <laughs> what, what, a, what a treat that must have been. It's, it's hard to fathom, in all honesty. Yeah, you, you, you jumped in both feet right there, man. 20 shows, first tour, boom. That's amazing. <laughs> and what, considering you had never seen him before, what was that like? I mean, I think most people, including me, who have has gone on to see many, many shows, you know, when I saw Bruce the first time, I saw him once. And, and then I desperately waited to see him again. And, and then it was 85, and I saw him a handful of uh, more times. And, and it took time to build. You really leapt in. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I, I should actually um, defend that and say that uh, I didn't, I must admit, I, I never actually planned to, to myself at the beginning to say, right, I'm going to go and see the whole tour. I mean, I had time on my hands, but as I, said, I had no money. It was only whatever I could, could sell in the way of fanzine copies as I went around that meant that I could go, you know, from day to day. So it was very much a sort of... Um, an ad hoc thing, although I, I collected the, uh, a few tickets in advance. The fact that the whole UK tour was postponed what actually worked in my favour because it meant, um, firstly, that there was more time to find tickets through my gradually increasing circle of, of connections through the fanzine. Everyone was trading tickets like crazy because, you know, they had, had sold out pretty much everywhere. And the other advantage was that they were they were they were um, the show was the, the the tour was was built gradually. So originally it was nothing like that scale, um, and I hadn't planned on doing the four on on the mainland, as I say. So originally the maximum I, I thought I could possibly do was the sixteen UK ones, and that that tour was kind of like half that size to begin with. So it wasn't until March that they finally added the, the last four shows of the tour, making it up to sixteen in the UK. And I realized as I was going along, I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to go from show to show. And uh, before I knew it, I, w I was going everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that feeling I know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what advantage of being out of work? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, I want to ask you specifically about the second Paris show you saw. Okay. Um, it was, he opened with, it was a world debut of Follow That Dream. Yes. Do you remember or can you describe your, your feelings of hearing this song that you had, I mean, you had never heard Bruce do this song before? Had you heard it, the song at all prior to this? No, I didn't know um, anything about the, the song at all, um, you know, the, the original Elvis version or anything. And um, to be honest, I must admit, I thought when it started that it was Factory because yeah. it sounded so similar as an introduction. Um, and it didn't occur to us that Bruce would. Um, would change that, let alone introduce, uh, you know, a, a kind of, you know, effectively a, a world premiere. And so I was with my, my friend Jeff and we just had that thing that we all know where you just look at each other in disbelief and you, you're, you're saying to each other, what's this? And then we just called it uh, dreams or in dreams because that seemed to be the main, the main phrase that was repeated. 
uh, we loved it. Um, thought it was amazing. I, my total assumption was it was a it was a new Springsteen original, because I I didn't know any any better, um, and didn't find out until quite quite some time later that it oh, was really? uh, it was this kind of yeah kind of rewrite or adaptation as as um, Bruce Bass calls it. See, as I'm looking at the set lists here, it's it's really interesting because he did start all the mainland European shows, it looks like, with dirge-like slower song, whether it was Factory, Follow That Dream, he would later use Run Through the Jungle. And then when he got to English-speaking territory, that's when the show started opening with big-time rockers whether it was Prove It or Born to Run, as we know from the released Wembley show. He also opened with Ties a bunch of times. I, I, I really find that interesting, and, and there's something there artistically. I'm not even sure what it is. He, he, he must have decided in his mind that in front of these audiences that didn't speak English, he wanted to present the show in this way, uh, which really was, I, I think, different than he had presented shows in the past. He had never open with with slower songs like that no he hadn't except for thunder road he opened some shows with thunder road in 75 and even 76 so now i don't know if we can compare the thunder road piano version to opening with follow that dream or with factory they're different musically and let's face it one of those is thunder road (laughs) yeah now, getting back to the topic, Dan, I was reading what you had written about the second night in Brighton, and, and you really feel that that was a turning point. It was the last of the smaller halls before he moved into um, the, uh, the, 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 the larger arenas to finish off the, the UK tour. And the fact that he started with Born to Run for the first time that I remember um, immediately made us think, oh, this is different. He's going to do something different tonight. Um, whereas, as you say, we were used to, you know, the ties that buy and prove it all night, um, or factory or, or follow that dream being the opener before. So that was like a big signal. And we thought, what's he going to do in that, that space in the encores? And of course, we know that he did, uh, jungle land for the first time, uh, on Europe, in Europe, um, that night, which also added to the sort of special feeling of Brighton. That's another fascinating point you make, because Jungle Land, of course, is one of his biggest songs and one of the biggest showstoppers, as we know. And that was played, I believe, nightly from 75 through the U.S. 81 tour. And then he goes to Europe and the song isn't in the set for all these uh, appearances where he's playing places for the first time. That's right. Yes, it's uh, it, it definitely felt like a big moment um, uh, because. Um, well, there, there were other highlights that night. I, mean, I remember the price you pay was a highlight, and stolen car, which was also, I think, first time um, uh, in, in England, anyway. And uh, but Jungle Land was a real peak um, of that show, and uh, we uh, it, that added to the sense of this being a, being a turning point. And we thought, right, okay, you know, now anything goes from here on. And the, the London shows and the Birmingham shows, and for all we knew, they were just going to get even more special. And in many ways, they they were. But that's probably still my favorite show, despite Frankfurt being the first show, the, the uh, second night at Brighton, partly because I had probably my best ever ever spot. I was like uh, originally sitting front row because I'd, I'd camped out overnight for, for tickets. I, you know, I feel like I've, I've earned my ticket. I've, I've put <laughs> in line for it. Um, I totally missed the on sale for the first night because it was mostly advertised just locally and luckily managed to get one through a friend. But the second night, I felt right. Yep, I've earned my front row ticket. I'm going to really have a great time. 
And then it, what was funny was um, there were three or four uh, very sort of skinny, nervous-looking security guys in front of us. Uh, so there's like a gap between the front row and the stage and just these security guys. And uh, just before showtime, I heard their supervisor come past them and he, you know, kind of like a sort of like a loud stage whisper said, if they move, run. <laughs> so we knew what to do when the lights went down. We just ran and just wedged ourselves up against the stage, hopefully, hopefully not crushing any security guards in the process. But uh, um, And I remember I had a, a black mark across my chest the next day, a bruise from just being pushed against the stage. But I didn't feel it all night. Um, and Bruce was so close that, you know, you could reach out and just sort of tap him on the, on the boot um, when he was at the mic stand. It was, um, you know, you're cricking your neck to look up at him. He's that close. And that, well, that's a heck, heck of a spot to see Born to Run and to, and to prove it all night and to out the street that, and the yeah. rest of the show, obviously. My only wish is if I could go back in time with uh, some sort of uh, – um, in some way to, to, to film that <laughs> from that oh. perspective. <laughs> yeah, well, in terms of, of recording, we um, the the shows at, at Wembley Arena in London, and, that you, and you attended, what, there were what, six of them? Exactly. And you attended all of them. Yep. And that was, as you said, that was the, his first arena show in Europe, in any, in any way, right? Uh, well, there were arenas in uh, on on the mainland before that, but uh, I, I guess they were all smaller compared to places like Wembley. Wembley was had to be one of the largest, and then he went to an even larger venue, which was the Birmingham NEC, for the final two shows. So the, these those last sort of eight shows, if you like, definitely felt like they were a, a whole different scale uh, from the ones we'd seen before, especially because we'd started the UK tour somewhere as small as Newcastle, which is sort of barely 2,000 seats, something like that, a tiny theatre. Oh, wow. Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was that small. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, so intimate. I mean, that's the kind of, obviously, the kind of place he was playing on, on the Joad tour. And he and they actually went back to those very same venues uh, in 96. To, so that was an extraordinary thing later. But, uh, um, yeah, the average was probably about 4,500, uh, sorry, 4,000, 5,000, that kind of capacity um, across Europe. One of the things I want to ask in terms of Bruce's artistic perspective and how it was received by the audience in the first set of these shows, sometimes the order was tweaked, but generally there was a sequence that went something like promised land, this land is your land, the river into badlands. And, and, and this of course, as we were talking about was, was really, it had popped up on the fall leg and this was really the start of his awakening, especially the inclusion of this land as your land. How was that received by European audiences? It was received very well. I mean, I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be fair to say that it's probably anything like as well known as it would have been in the States. Um, and I must admit, when I first heard of it, I, I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was at all familiar to me originally. Um, and so, but I, I knew it was a cover. I just didn't know, you know, I hadn't really heard it, heard it uh, anything in any sort of format to speak of until I, I heard Bruce doing it live. And, um, but it went down well because I think, you know, his message was, 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 was trying to be universal. You know, this, this land is your land works in Europe as the same way it works in America. And in, in as much as he's saying, you know, I'm here for you, and you know, this is uh, this is a place that you should claim as your own. Um, that sort of that sense of uh, of inclusion. 
And I think people just welcomed that because he was saying like, yep, look, we're all, we're all in this together. Well, along those lines, let's back up to the show in Newcastle. Uh, we're in we're in that performance of this land is your land. Um, you said there were recent Streets of Brixton lyrics. Can you explain the significance significance of that to me? That's right. Yes, definitely. Because uh, what had happened is earlier that month um, there were there were riots in Brixton in South London, very much the you know, the, the Black Lives Matter saga you know way back then. Um, and which made the um, the headlines all, all over um, the UK and uh, clearly in Europe too, because he'd started referencing that. I think possibly a couple of nights before, a few nights before, somewhere like Rotterdam or somewhere. Um, so it wasn't the very first time, but the first time that that I had heard him change the lyrics to that. So he was actually, uh, it, he I think he was effectively actually including an original verse of his own, an extra extra, extra lines rather than just changing lines. Um, and very deliberately saying, you know, I, I'm aware of, you know, what's going on politically in your country. Well, that goes along with what you were saying about, I mean, the themes of this land is your land. It's not just an American song. It's it could should it could be and should be for for every country basically on the planet. I think that's exactly right because yeah, by by inserting the local reference, um, that really kind of cemented that impression. You know, otherwise. Yeah, you could easily have been forgiven for thinking, oh, he's singing about America. But he probably thought, I need something to kind of link it to where I am now. And uh, and that worked perfectly. And I think it, it had an amazing re- reception. Um, I mean, I've always thought that, that, that ever since the, those shows that, you know, he was a master of timing in terms of the live set list. And so he knew when to take a break, when to give people a moment to cool off. And that's when these things like this land is your land and independence, they work perfectly as, as kind of these breathing spaces um, in that first set. Okay. I always viewed that as kind of the, the tension release. Yes. Whereas uh, Independence Day is kind of the, the tension and then he, he, he releases it by going into two hearts or something. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. It's, a, it's sort of a very sort of clever sort of kind of play of, of the um, – the energy of the show, which um, you don't really sort of consciously think about at first, but after you've seen a few shows, you begin to really respect and you think, wow, he's an absolute master at uh, pace, pacing well, this. It's very cinematic. He's a master of telling a narrative and, and pacing a narrative, and that has always been the case, and that's one of the reasons why I think Broadway wound up so successful. Definitely, yes. I mean, that that's you can see that as like a pinnacle of what he was doing. Certainly, as long ago as 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 and probably even you could argue earlier. Now, did those did those six shows and or eight shows, as you said, to to finish up the UK tour and the and the European tour in general, mm-hmm. going from the the smaller venues to the big arenas? What did it change the feel of the show? Um, I mean, the the set lists were pretty similar, except except for as we noted. He started opening with more of a rocker than a than a dirge. Yeah, I I'm not. I think it was it's hard it was hard for me to be objective about it because I think <laughs> at, at that point I was probably thinking, wow, this is great. It, it's another show. And although I was obviously aware of the extra sort of capacity and the extra scale, the um, I think very quickly, um, and I imagine Bruce might have been nervous because if you think about it, the first Wembley show was the first show he'd done. In London since '75, which and, and all the, the sort of uncertainty that came with that at the time. 
So I think it's safe to say that he, you know, he must have felt that he he'd won London over totally by the fact by the time that he'd finished certainly the, the first show, um, and just sort of went on to consolidate that over the the following nights. Um, the, the the main highlight for us, of course, uh, the, the first night at Wembley was the debut of Trapped, which nobody knew anything about. Apparently, it had been sound checked. I don't know anybody who heard that, but. Uh, um, it was again for me one of those moments where I'm looking at my friend and this strange rhythm is coming out and we're thinking, what's this? We don't recognize this, <laughs> you know. And again, I I totally assumed it was a new Springsteen original, and we had to wait again to find out um, that it wasn't. And what an extraordinary rearrangement! Probably still, arguably one of the most um, you know inspired arrangements when you think you know what the original is like. Absolutely. And and on a narrative sense, where does he drop it into? He drops trapped right into the promised land, river, this land is your land, bad land segment, uh, which I think even heightens it even more. Yes, that was um, exactly how that was an, an inspired sort of position, uh, again, in terms of the pacing and the narrative, as you say. Um, perfect, perfect spotting. I mean, I suppose he could arguably have opened the show with it. I mean, I wouldn't have been surprised. But I think that first night... You know, he probably thought, I'm going to come out with Born for One and just make quite sure I've got everybody in the palm of my hand. <laughs> He's going to announce his presence with authority. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, the funny thing was, I, I, I must confess, I missed watching the first half of Born to Run that first night because I was in the building. But I'd actually been, it's a long story, but I'd actually been dropped off backstage. Um because of hanging out with Clarence and Clarence's parents, of all people, who very kindly <laughs> gave me and my friend a lift to the arena. But they dropped us backstage without any passes. And then this is almost showtime. And the next thing I know is the band are walking past us, and I see these steps, and I'm thinking, I hear the roar of this crowd, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's about time. To, it's almost 8 o'clock. We, we, we've got to get out because we can't, can't see anything from behind the stage. So I had to go to a security guy and say, look, I don't, don't have a pass. Can you throw me out in, in the street so I can get back into the building and see the show? Oh, wow. So I missed the first half of the song, uh, which uh, because we had to run out and run back in. and Didn't find our seats until halfway through because it was pitch dark inside. Wow. And then on a, along the same lines as Trapped, on the, on the final night of, of the Wembley run, yep. he, he debuts Jolie Blonde. Exactly. Again, I didn't see that coming. I mean, even though obviously we'd, we'd heard it um, but by that point, you know, the, the album was dedication was out. Um, the, the, the single, which is very much hyped as, you know, Gary Bonds with um, uh, Bruce Springsteen was well known. I think it was probably already maybe like a minor hit on the radio. What song? Do you uh, remember what song it was? Was it This Little Girl? Uh, I, think, I, th I thought Jolie Blonde was the single. I'm, I'm imagining it. Okay, um, all right. Okay. I have to go back and check. But it, it certainly was very familiar. And again, it was just sort of welcomed. Um, again, thinking of the, um, the the pacing coming after Cadillac Ranch and Sherry Darling. So it was like, you know, it was one, two, three, party time. Um, great positioning there. Um, there were probably a fair few people, considering how many people would have been there that didn't recognize it. But then you could argue that they many of them would still have just been only partly familiar with um, with the rest of the catalogue. But it just, by that point, they were just dancing and just happy to, to sort of go with the flow. 
Okay, very different from today, where if they don't know every word of the song, they're checking their phones. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As I get a little dig at everybody. Okay, I'm sorry about that. The world was different then, Flynn. <laughs> get over it. It was. I know, I know. Sometimes it's sometimes change isn't always good. Well, certainly something we wish there was video of <laughs> would be the guest appearance by Pete Townsend, which I believe you saw in Birmingham towards the end of the leg. Were you, you were there for that? Very much, uh, very much so, Hal. Yes, I mean, this is one of the big mysteries, if you like, of that whole kind of run of shows, um, is that there is no um, circulating uh, footage or I any images of any kind um, of, of that, that guest appearance, which is bizarre. Mind you, the same has to be said for Link Ray, who, who turned up a few nights earlier, although arguably it was le of less, um, uh, less impact, if you like. Yeah, but, no sliding Link Ray, but yeah. Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend is, I, I think that, is that the yeah. only time he's played on stage with Bruce? Now, I know Bruce showed up at some kind of Who thing that I believe, Flynn, you were at. Yes, it was uh, New York City. Uh, I think it was 2015. Uh, it was uh, they were The Who were being honored, or at least Daltrey and Townsend were being honored. I forget the details, but yeah, it was Bruce Bruce was one of the presenters, and, and, they, and they played a little bit. And of course, I, I forget the song, so... You can throw my Rain Man moniker out the window now. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the whole Townsend uh, appearance was um, really quite bizarre and still very much a sort of mystery to us over here because, um, like I said, there, there was no, there's nothing documented about it that we've ever found. We're always appealing for somebody to sort of come out, come forth with something about that. But we know for sure it happened. I remember when I first realized he was there, it was like a double take because he was not introduced. Uh, there had been an earlier um, dedication to, um, to to Pete, the Promised Land, I think was dedicated in that night. We know, uh, we learned since that he actually went to all those last eight shows. Oh, wow. He had, been, he had been invited to get on stage at Brighton, but that was his first show. And one report um, was that he was kind of almost overwhelmed and not not really feeling like he, he, he was he was ready. To join in but after he'd seen about six or seven shows he uh that, that he'd sort of set up this arrangement with stevie where he basically just came on for the encores as i say no announcement he was dressed like stevie and stood next to stevie so you were actually almost sort of seeing, <laughs> thinking am, am i seeing double i thought well, that can't be two stevies he had, had a, the same hat he had the, you know the same clothes uh, there's another guy with guitar and there's no microphone or anything. What, what's going on? So you would be forgiven for not knowing who he was at all that night, except for the fact, you know, he, he played guitar and he made some reference later about how, you know, he basically just waited for Stevie to call out the chords to him. They'd obviously hardly rehearsed it. And there was one funny moment where he wasn't paying 100% attention. Bruce stopped the band suddenly in the medley and Townsend play, plays an extra random chord. Oops. <laughs> sort of oops, an oops moment, exactly. But, you know, everyone laughs and carries on. And um, no, that was the weird thing. And then he disappeared. And, um, yeah, it was like, you know, perhaps he didn't want to be introduced. You know, uh, he certainly had a very low-key appearance. Yeah, based on what you, how you're describing it, dressed just like Steve, it's I, I want to see that picture now. I want to see a photo. Oh, and it's Exactly. It's, <laughs> and it's so wild that there, there's none. It is I mean, bizarre. it's been 40 yeah. years and you haven't found a photo yet. That's right. I mean, it's not as if there aren't other photos from those shows. That's the that's the bizarre thing. 
Um, you know, there were you know, the usual sort of uh, conditions about cameras and so forth, but that didn't stop people getting pictures <laughs> at other sh other shows. That's true. Uh, even even in the days before, you know, mobile phones. Um, I was with a couple of friends who got got some great pictures, sometimes with telephoto lenses. You know, so yeah, that is a real mystery about that tour. So, so now you've gotten to the end of the European tour and the UK tour. Uh, did you see any difference between Frankfurt and the last show there in Birmingham? Could you see any kind of growth or maturity or or anything? I think I was probably kind of like sort of too close to the whole experience to. Um, Sort of being able to be able to examine it that way. I mean, I'm sure there was an evolution in confidence um, as the, as the the tour went on, and I feel very lucky that I you know saw that kind of cross section of of the tour, you know, almost the start right to the end, um, and it was there was there was really just more of a sense of like right he's done it, you know, he's absolutely won everyone over. Um, you know, not not just the um, the, the media and the, the, the press, but uh, everyone I knew, uh, old fans, new fans, is like, yeah, he's he's conquered, he's conquered the UK, he's conquered Europe, and we were absolutely convinced that he would be back again in in no time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> little did little did we know. We thought he's he's just got to come back. He, he's this has made you know such an impact, but well, it wasn't wasn't to be. Well, I mean, basically he did. I mean, he finished up the River Tour in the US, and then. He went. He just happened to go away and release, and spend two and a half years in the studio. Uh, <laughs> so that when, when he, came, he did come back in the in, in the summer true. of eighty of eighty five, obviously, and we, we had to and, wait. Yeah, I, I think we probably kind of thought, oh, he'll be back next year. It was probably that kind of naivety that we thought, uh, yeah, there's going to be more. He's bound, to, you know, because also he was saying, you know, um, thanks for coming out to see me. I mean, I'll, I'll be seeing you. That kind of thing. So we kind of thought, yeah, he wants to come back. Yeah. And it really, it really did lay the groundwork. Uh, you yeah. think about the seeds planted during this tour of Europe. It, he just told Obama in the last episode of their podcast that he believes two thirds of his audience is in Europe and one third of his audience is now in the United States. And you also had the political awakening that had already started, but really continued as they went through and saw these other countries as 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 we were talking about. And really, this is one of the most significant legs of touring, I think, of his career. I agree. I would, I would definitely agree. Yes, as you say, it's, uh, yeah, it was a turning point, I think, for them, a journey of discovery, uh, literally, um, you know, as well as musically and uh, in terms of the relationship with the audience. And, well, for all of them, I think very few of any of those guys had, had been abroad, um, or especially anything on that sort of scale before. Um, when I recently got in touch with um, tour photographer Jim Marchese, he admitted it was his very first time overseas. He was given 24 hours notice and he flew out uh, for like eight weeks or whatever it was. And um, so a, a, an extraordinary journey for him and a, a similar journey for me that I, I had no idea what to expect. And I'm, you know, those weeks later, it's like, wow, can I believe I just did that? And <laughs> how, how, how lucky have I been? And then when he came back in 85, there was no more, nothing indoor. Everything was an open air, 60,000 plus stadiums. Exactly. So again, we were so lucky in hindsight. We, again, we probably naively thought, oh, when he comes back, he'll be playing, you know, plenty of theaters and, you know, small arenas. And, you know, it never occurred to us that, as you, as you know, you know, a few years later, he's going to be filling stadiums. <laughs> we just, it just never crossed our, uh, our sort of minds at all. Like, no, that's, yeah. Who, who, who could see that coming? 
I, even Bruce couldn't see it coming. So, that's <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> no one saw that coming. Yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us. We uh, really enjoyed hearing the stories, the firsthand stories of, as Hal said, one of his most important legs, touring legs of his career. And it's, it's always great to hear it from someone who was there. Well, absolute pleasure for me, guys, to to join you. Thank you again so much for having me on the podcast, which I have to say is is is, is my favorite. I really admire what you guys do. I love the fact that you have this sort of um, obviously years long chemistry between you, the way you present it, and the way you um, cover things in such an interesting way. And um, yeah, it's a, re- a real joy to be um, be a small part of this one. Um, can I also just maybe take the chance to say? Um, as I'm sure you are, I'm still thinking about our old friend, Holly Cara Price, who I'm sure would have been there if she could have been. She had already probably covered um, far more um, ground on the American tour that time and um, inspired me very much um, with like, oh, this is a thing you can do. You can can follow (laughs) follow a tour uh, and you can do it again and again and uh, and make great friends. That's what you you guys have done for the last 40 years. Isn't it amazing when you meet other people with that level of passion who also, I mean, let's be honest here, where I'm including myself, are a little bit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't have it any other way, Hal. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, it's, uh, you know, I joke about being a a professional Springsteen fan. You know, it's like, oh, you could do worse things for a career. (laughs) (laughs) True. Now you have a you have a Facebook group, right, for your uh, for the 40th anniversary of Point Blank. Yes, if you just sort of uh, search for, for Point Blank in groups on Facebook, you'll you'll find all the um, the posts we're doing to sort of uh, mark and celebrate this uh, this season. Um, there's also my um, sort of uh, there's an ongoing website where you can download copies of the, of the fanzine, the f- free PDF downloads. If you search for Wild and Innocent Productions, that was oh, okay. my, my banner for that. And I've been working closely with. Um, Chris at Backstreets on a, a few things, like recently we did the uh, Jim Marchese uh, uh, interview to get together. And as I say, look out for um, very sort of in-depth um, look at um, the UK uh, part of the, of the 81 tour from Mike Saunders in Backstreets very soon. Oh, that's great. great. Looking forward to reading that. So thanks again, guys. Oh, thanks, Dan. And I'll hope to be seeing you somewhere in 2022 <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, let's hope. Um, look forward to that. And of course, you know, be safe and take care in the meantime. You Thank too. you so much. Once again, that was Dan French, editor of the Springsteen fanzine Point Blank. And and, and that was a treat. I, I thought he did a great job. Oh, yeah. It's so great to hear the stories of, of those days from people who, who were there. Literally 40 years ago. <laughs> How does time fly? I do not know. 21 years since the May 8th show in Hartford. Hard to believe. <laughs> Yeah, my memories of memory of that one is starting to fade a little bit. So I hope I hope they uh, I got to listen to listen to that recording a few dozen more times. That's pretty much it for tonight's episode. Now we want to tell you what's coming up in our next episode. We're going to have another guest, and this time it's going to be Caroline Madden, author of Springsteen: A Soundtrack. And this is a particularly exciting topic for me to talk about Bruce's music in movies and television. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating. She, her book includes very detailed looks at, at about a dozen films in which Bruce's music appears and and how the the whole story of each of these films interacts with Bruce's own story and the, and the, and the story of Bruce's music. So it's 
she's really done a very thorough job and we look forward to talking with her. Yeah, definitely. And one last bit of news regarding the show, uh, and this is exciting for us. We're going to be joining the Evergreen Podcast Network. Now, this is sort of a soft announcement. There's going to be an official announcement coming up probably in a month or so. But we did want to let the audience know there's going to be no change to the show. It's going to be seamless for the audience. Wherever you listen to the show, it's still going to be there. Again, everything the same. The only difference you're going to notice is there are going to be ads running on the show, which we're very excited (laughs) about. You know, we started this show. We didn't know if anyone was going to listen. And we just sort of did it for ourselves. and, And we're very gratified that we've gotten such a great response and and now that we can join people they're they're wonderful people at at evergreen and we think they're going to help grow the show even more yes we're we've been overwhelmed by the response of the show over the last couple of years and we're very excited to to work with evergreen to to grow the show even more and with that i'll end the show with our usual spiel None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and soon to be a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to interact with us, please visit our website, nonebutthebravepodcast.com, or you can find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. Thanks again to Dan French for joining us. We loved hearing his stories. And for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.